Okay, um, I saw a funny video uh, on YouTube the other day. It was about being a British person in America. Um, and it started with just this guy, and, and he was walking along the street, and every time he bumped into someone, he said, sorry. Um, and as a British person, I think that's, that's, very, that's very true. We say sorry when we bump into somebody. We say sorry when we're a little bit too slow to open a door for somebody. We say sorry when we are just like pausing or hesitant. We just say sorry for everything. Um, I wonder whether you can remember the last time you said sorry. You see, when we say sorry that many times, it kind of loses its significance. And there are significant times when we have to say we're sorry. Now, my mum always used to say that uh, you only should say you're sorry where, well, what it should mean is that I won't do it again. So you only say I'm sorry if you're, going, you're never going to do that thing again. But the Bible takes this a step further. And what we're going to do in today's passage is look at what the Bible says about repentance. What does it mean to have a penitent heart, a repentant heart? So if you've got your Bibles, uh, we, you know, especially if you've got a phone, uh, we're looking at ESV version, uh, but do grab a Bible. There are a few Bibles over there. Uh, we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, and we're going to go spill over into 23. Uh, we don't have time to read all of 23, but we'll have a, a quick look at the start of 23, um, and I'll stop at an appropriate place, and then, uh, but you'll get, hopefully get the idea. So two, uh, the second book of Kings chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, uh, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked all, in all the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphath, Shaphan, the son of uh, Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hands of the workmen who will have the oversight of the, the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who uh, are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house that is, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked for them for the money that is delivered into the hands, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the, the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in their house and had delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan said, uh, the secretary told the king, 
Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, uh, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of God that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the, book, the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Asiah went to Hilda, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, uh, the son of Tik. Tikvah, son of Hahas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me, and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled in this, against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that you should become a, desol a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, before I gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I bring upon this place, and they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered, before, uh, gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the, the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and, and his testimonies and his statutes and with all his heart and all his soul to form the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the, the high priest of the, uh, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the field of, uh, fields of Kidron and carried the, their ashes to Bethel. And the rest of the chapter goes on to recount how Josiah cleanses Israel or Judah and destroys the king, uh, the, the the, the gods that uh, 
the false gods that Manasseh had introduced to, to Israel. So, well, let me pray, sorry, before we go on. Father, thank you for this account of Josiah and his faithfulness to you. Uh, we pray that you are with us now as we read your word and as we learn from your word. I pray that you speak uh, to us today and that we are changed by your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw from the video that Josiah was uh, preceded by Man uh, Manasseh, uh, an evil king, uh, did much evil in the sight of God. He introduced a lot of worship of other gods, uh, set up worship of Asherah, who was a, um, she was a fertility god uh, in the temple. So undoubtedly that meant that the temple was turned into some kind of whorehouse and even sacrificed his own son. We see that uh, Manasseh is followed by um, Ammon, and we see that God declares destruction against Jer uh, Ju Judah and Jerusalem. We've seen by now that uh, Israel, which is the northern kingdom, has been exiled and taken away. Uh, but you can see that Israel as a whole has fall fallen a long way from its greatest days where it conquered all the nations around it. David conquered all the nations around it and Solomon, in Solomon's reign there was peace. But Ammon is, uh, is killed by his own servants who place his eight-year-old son Josiah in his place. And somehow God protects this eight-year-old boy through these difficult times and you can imagine what it must be like as a, uh, with an eight-year-old boy on the throne with all these uh, nations around wanting to take Jerusalem and uh, somehow we see 18 years later this this story picks up 18 year, years later Josiah gets into his head that he should re uh, rebuild the temple or at least repair it and we get some sense of his character he's He's a trustworthy man. He, he trusts. It's not just that people trust him. He trusts the workmen to rebuild this temple. And we can see that the temple is in poor repair now. It needs repair. It needs some carpentry and masonry. Uh, it needs uh, money invested in it. And the money from the people of Israel is now being kept in the temple. The temple is basically being turned into a counting house. How far has it fallen from the great days of Solomon where the riches from around the world came to Solomon and he built the temple full of gold and silver and precious jewels? It was the envy of all of the nations around, full of gold and silver and precious jewels built right in the center of Jerusalem. How far has it fallen from there? Now, on a tr different track, I remember as a, a young boy, I used to consume books a lot. Uh, I think I get despair a little bit of the stu my students now that they uh, they don't read that much. I remember just recently, uh, uh, one of uh, my students passed by me, just his head in a in a book, and I, I remember I think I said to myself, 
10 years ago, I would have picked up that boy, yeah, picked up that and I would have said, I would have given that boy a telling off because he was not looking where he was going and he didn't acknowledge that I, you know, just say hello. Instead, I just thought, good lad, he's reading. He's <laughs> come that far because kids don't read that much any, anymore. But anyway, uh, when I was a young boy, I remember reading uh, two books, two fantasy books, and I really enjoyed them. And I went back to the library to find the third book and I couldn't find it. And I searched all over the library. I asked the librarian and Despite being the founder of all knowledge, the librarian said, no, I'm sorry, we, I can't find it. He came back to me a week later, sorry, the publisher hasn't got a third book. And I searched other libraries, and I couldn't find this book. Um, I remembered the book a couple of years ago, um, and I looked it up on the internet. And it turns out, sadly, that the author had died, and sadly, there was no third book but the internet gave me great detail about the author and the author's life and other books like those books and other things that the author had written. You see, nowadays it's impossible to imagine that a book can be lost. It just seems so strange that a book, especially a book of such significance, but it was lost. But it is significant, because this book, as, as I've told you in previous sermons, that to the Jews, the book of the law, the Torah, this was the Torah, was not just their history, not just their re religious text, it was their language, their English grammar, you, you might say, or their English literature. It was their repository of songs and poems. It was their childhood stories. So any education would have revolved around the Bible. It was their education. It was their national identity. A couple of years ago, or the, these last couple of years, I've been quite interested to see um, Singapore celebrating uh, their, their 50th anniversary and really, really trying to struggle to gain, trying to figure out what their national identity is. And it's been really interesting watching that. And I think it's... Uh, I know it's sad, but it's, it's helped in some ways that, uh, to commemorate the, the death of Lee Kuan Yew, who has been so instrumental and his vision has shaped Singapore. But it's nice to see that they acknowledge among that their Malay roots, their Chinese roots, and their British roots, uh, and be very proud of those alongside also forming their own identity. You see, every nation is proud of their national identity, isn't it? I find it difficult because I'm both Chinese and British, both of which I can be both proud and, when I was younger, very arrogant about. Like, British, we, we've conquered the world. I'm Chinese. Well, we know all know Chinese are the master race anyway, so, you know, and amazing at maths, you know. Uh, so, so I could be, you know, but every, that's every nation, isn't it? And we see... Uh, the nationalism rearing its ugly head in, in various different countries at the moment. But they are drawing on the very patriotic, the national pride of these countries. So it seems very strange that Israel has lost the Torah, its, you know, its national identity. And they've forgotten what set them apart from other nations. 
how God set them apart from other nations. We talked about last, uh, last week how they'd lost the idea of community, looking after widows, the whole idea of, that they were a special nation, a, a nation who cared for their community. But when the book is found, what is Josiah's reaction? What is his reaction? It's quite drastic, isn't it? Before I look at that, though, I want you to think about what his reaction could have been. Could have been very different, couldn't it? And I wonder whether, as I lay out these options, they say, whether any of them sound familiar. So he could have found this book that was uh, written by Moses, mostly. And he could have dismissed it as irrelevant. A nice bit of history for, written for an ancient time. Things were different back then. Times have changed, people have changed, and it's not, no longer relevant. Does that sound familiar? Perhaps he could have said, well, this is important, and recognize it for the holy book, or even place high value on it, but let's pick and choose which bits fit into what we know today. Let's pick and choose the nice bits, the bits that, you know, we think, yes, let's celebrate this, and we can fit our lives into that, but let's ignore the difficult bits. Or he could have said, let's take this book and recognize that it is a book of a God, and let's see how it compares to the gods that we have today. And let's see how they mesh together. Okay, let's find some compromise between this book, which is the God of Israel. We could even say this is the God of Judah and see how these other gods, the worship of these other gods, oh, that's okay. Let's see how, well, let's find them some common ground. Do these sound familiar? He could have said, well, I've lived 18 years ruling this, this country without God, without this book, it's working. Why should I change now? He could have said, God, you're right, but let's change one small thing at a time. I'm going to pray to you and I'm going to just change one small thing at a time. I'm going to let you change me. Judah isn't ready for a big change. We'd upset a lot of people. Does that sound familiar? He could have hidden it in his heart. He could have changed and he could have worshipped God by himself. Gently speaking to those around him. Gently trying to persuade them. He doesn't do that. You see, a book can be lost just as easily in today's society as back then. We can dismiss it as irrelevant. We can call it a holy book and value it and see how it meshes with other gods out there today. It's a holy book. It's about being good. It teaches a lot about being good, doesn't it? We could just see it as that, and plenty of people does. It's a book about, that teaches us about where we've come from. It's a history book. It's a book that I can just pick and choose from to see what matches my values and my life. As long as it doesn't affect my life too much, make me too uncomfortable, make me too seem too weird to my friends, I would hate to do that. 
Do we sometimes look at the Bible in that way? You see, a book like this can be just as easily lost today. I've lived all these lives perfect, uh, sorry, all these years in my life perfectly fine. Why should I change now? Why should I upset people? It's my faith. It affects me deeply, but I don't want to upset other people. I want to be that nice Christian who lives a godly life, but I don't want to upset people. Let's have a look at what Josiah did. Reading from verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shephath, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shephath the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire uh, of the Lord for me and the people and for all Judah concerning the words of uh, of this book that has been found. He's upset and he consults the experts. And then what does he do? He acts. He changes. He upsets people. He's not just sorry, is he? He goes on to cleanse the nation. Now, what do we, what do we understand about the word penitent? What do we think of when we hear the word pen- penitent? And the word humble. Some might think that they're not very manly words, are they? We're taught from a very young age, be proud of who you are, be proud of your nation, be proud of your work. Stand strong, stand up. Hmm. It's quite different from the word penitent and humble, isn't it? In in verse 19, Josiah is described as having a penitent and humble heart. But here we see that they are not words of character, they're words of action. You see, penitence and repentance come from the same word. The Oxford English Dictionary describes them as synonyms, in fact, uses repentance to describe the word penitent. It's not very helpful if you don't understand both words. In Hebrew, the word is often translated as turn or return. And some commentators talk about the military term, uh, yeah, uh, about turn. So when uh, yeah, a troop is marching, they say about turn. And what does that mean? A full 180 degree turn, a full change of direction. And we see that that's what Josiah does here. There are no half measures. We don't see a weak and feeble king here. We don't see a gentle, uh, unman, uh, you know, feminine man. Oh, sorry, that shouldn't, I shouldn't use that word. Uh, like soft man. We don't see him afraid. We see him as a man of action. He cleanses Judah of the worship of the gods. He takes the god. Uh, the false gods out of the temple straight away and he burns them. He gets all of Israel, uh, sorry, Judah and Jerusalem together and reads the book of the words of the law to, to them. Sadly, in the long term, this does nothing for the Jews. Uh, about 20 years after Josiah's death, Jerusalem and Judah 
fall to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are and many are exiled. That's not the end though. We see among those exiles people like Daniel and his friends. But during Josiah's reign, God withholds his wrath. And in uh, chapter 23, verse 25, if you've got it there, open it, just have a look at it. Chapter 3, uh, verse 25, it's said of Josiah, Before him uh, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord and with all his heart and all his soul and all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's quite powerful words, isn't it? Not even David or Solomon are seen to be better than Josiah. David, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. Solomon, who is described as the, the wisest man in history and who built the temple for God. Neither of those who are the great kings of Israel are compared to Josiah. Josiah is seen to be better than them. You see, God values passion. And he values wisdom. But he values humility and penitence above those. And that's amazing. That's something I learned from this passage. This might be familiar to some. Psalm 51, verse 17, uh, 16 to 17. Don't, 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 you don't need to read it. Um, you turn to it. Um, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, God loves a humble and penitent heart. And 600 years after Josiah, a man comes... And appears, and what does he preach? In Matthew 3, John the Baptist proclaims, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 4, Jesus proclaims, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Mark 1, Jesus proclaims, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. Uh, It's not quite so obvious in Luke's gospel, but in chapter 5, verse 31, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's often paraphrased as, I have not uh, come to be a... a, 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 a uh, Only the sick need a doctor... um, but I've come to uh, call the the sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, interestingly, John never uses the word repentance, but famously tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And if you don't interpret that to be a complete change in your life, uh, I don't know how else to convince you that this was Jesus's main message. Repent and believe. You see, if we're looking at the Bible and not being changed, then we are like the man in James uh, chapter 1, verse 23. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, then he is like the man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. You see, if we're Christians, then how can we do anything but look at the word of God? How can we call ourselves Christians and not want to know this word of God, that God uh, this word that God has faithfully kept and handed down to us? And if we're looking at the word of God and we're not challenged and changed by it, then we are reading it wrong. As a maths teacher, I'm sometimes I struggle for the 40th time to teach the same material and keep it fresh, to look at it at the eyes, you know, through the eyes of, of my students and think about how I can make it interesting, you know, point out the fascinating bits about it. And there is plenty to be fascinated in maths. Sorry, all of you don't like maths. There is plenty to be fascinated by maths. But it's difficult sometimes to come and keep it fresh. But this is how I know that what I'm saying is worthwhile. If I'm not being challenged by what I'm saying in a sermon, then what I'm saying is not worthwhile. Then I'm doing it wrong. If I'm not personally challenged, then I know that I've failed in, my ser- in writing down my sermon. Many of you will leave uh, this church and visit many other churches. And let me tell you this. If you're in a sermon and they don't open up the word of God, then you might as well be doing something far more productive. If they're not opening up the word of God to teach you, then they may as well be just moralizing and teaching you their own opinion. In fact, they probably are. If you are sitting in a sermon listening to pleasant platitudes and are not being challenged by it, then you have to ask yourself, is this what this passage is really saying? If you're not being challenged by what the passage is saying, then you've got to ask yourself, is this what this passage is really saying? And I want you to come back to me if I I say something you disagree with. Look at the passage and say, is that what this passage is saying? Come back to me and say, I actually disagree with you on this. I'm not saying that I may challenge you every single week, but the the word of God should be open to you. The word of God should be challenging to you. And we should be changed by it. If we are not being challenged and changed by the word of God, then you have to ask yourself, do you believe in a pure and perfect God who cannot abide sin? Do you believe in a pure and perfect God who sacrificed his son to die for your sins? Do you believe in a pure and perfect God who went through that suffering to make sure that we can have a relationship with him and a place in eternity, a place in heaven?
You see, the book of God, uh, the book of God, the Bible, it can so easily be lost today, can't it? Lost if we don't read it. Lost if we just assume we know what's in it. Lost if we just listen to what others say, even Christians, what others say about it. Lost if we read it with our own agenda, without a humble and penitent heart. You see, God loves a humble and penitent heart. Let me pray. Father, forgive us for our arrogance, for our selfishness, for our pride, for the times when we think that we know what's going on, that we think that we know how to live our own lives, that we ignore your advice. Lord, we pray that you give us the strength and the passion for you and the love of you to change. Teach us to love your word, to come to it with, uh, with a humble heart, to be ready to be changed by you. Lord, you've given us promises of joy and peace. And yet we fear to be changed, Lord. You've promised us a place in heaven, a place in your family, and yet we fear to be changed. Lord, we pray that you take away that fear from us. You take away our pride and that you give us a contrite, changed and broken heart. In Jesus' name, amen.